Why does Paul begin his list of Christ-like virtues, these fruit of the Spirit, as he calls it, why does he begin with the virtue of love? Have you ever wondered that? According to the English spiritual writer Evelyn Underhill, this was no mistake. I do not think, she says, that St. Paul arranged his list of the fruits of the Spirit in a casual order. They represent a progressive series from one point, and that one point is love, the living eternal seed from which all grow. And Evelyn Underhill, she's not alone in thinking that Paul begins with love for a reason. Ancient church fathers like Jerome and Augustine, they also thought that Paul begins his list with love because love is the source of all the rest of the virtues. And, you know, that makes sense. After all, if there is one quality that the New Testament associates with Jesus, more than any other, it is love. How did Jesus summarize the law? To love God and love your neighbor. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that his principal command for his followers is that they love one another. As he puts it in John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And love isn't just what Jesus asks of his disciples. Love is also what Jesus himself embodies. As St. Paul puts it in Romans 5 verse 8, it is through Christ and through his death on the cross that we learn the nature of God's love for us. And the Apostle John says something very similar in his first epistle. He says that it's through Christ's death that we have come to know the meaning of love. And it is love, he goes on to say, that is the characteristic mark of God's own nature. As he puts it in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So that's why we begin with the fruit of love. Because God is love, as John says. Because love is the fulfillment of the commandments. And because love, according to Jesus, is the primary mark of his followers. But what exactly is love? You may think that it's rather obvious. After all, it's not exactly an uncommon word or idea. Love is everywhere. Movies and television are filled with stories of love. Poets write about love. Musicians sing about love. We even now have little emoji symbols and buttons that we can press on our mobile devices to communicate our love for a message that someone writes or a photo they post. But in fact, it's precisely because love is so common, precisely because we use the word so often and with such variety that we need to get some clarity on what Paul is actually talking about, what he means when he uses this word, love. So that's what we're going to do in this session. We're going to ask the question, what is love? And then we're going to ask the question, and how can we cultivate this fruit of love in our own lives? First, what is love? In his book, The Four Loves, 
C.S. Lewis distinguishes between a variety of different loves, like the natural affection we feel for things that belong to us or are familiar to us, or the love that exists between friends who delight in each other's company, or the passionate adoration that's felt by two lovers when they see one another. All of these are kinds of love, but Lewis distinguishes all of them from a fourth kind of love, a love which he calls by its Latin name, charity, or on occasion by its Greek name, agape. And that's the kind of love that Paul is referring to when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul isn't talking about the affection we feel for a sports team or a favorite restaurant. He's not talking about the love we feel for our friends, nor is he talking about romantic love. No, when Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, he uses a specific word for that, the word agape. But, but what does this word mean? What is agape? What is charity? And how is it different from the other forms of love? Now, the first thing to say about charity is this. Charity, love of that kind, is sacrificial. Love does not seek its own, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It doesn't seek its own good. It seeks the good of the other. Just think about Jesus. What does he say in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the love that we see in Jesus was sacrificial. It was a costly love. And Jesus didn't love people just by treating them kindly or feeling affection for them. Jesus loved people by giving up his own good for theirs. And in doing so, he established a pattern for us to follow in the way that we love one another. As we read in 1 John chapter 3, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So that's one of the distinctive things we see about charity, this kind of love. That kind of love is sacrificial. It gives up its good for the sake of the other. But that really isn't the most shocking thing that Jesus teaches or even the most distinctive about love. No, the most distinctive thing is not just how we love, but who we love. The love that we see in Jesus, the love that is the fruit of the Spirit, it's a love that extends not only to friends and neighbors and family members, not only to people in our neighborhoods and communities, not even just to strangers. To love as Jesus loved is to love even those whom we dislike and those who wrong us, even our enemies. And that's what Jesus did. He loved those who hated him. He prayed for and he forgave those who mocked and beat him. And that's what Jesus calls his followers to do as well, not just to love our friends, Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And this was, this was a shocking statement in the Roman world. In fact, according to the historian Amy Jill Levine, Jesus seems to have been the only person in antiquity 
to have given an instruction like this. And this kind of love, when it's practiced, it's still shocking today. And when I think about the extent of Jesus's love, I'm reminded of the story of the Ugandan Anglican Bishop, Festo Kivingere. In 1973, he was forced to flee Uganda because of the threats on his life from the tyrannical dictator Idi Amin. And Kivingere had been one of several bishops who had been summoned to Amin's residence. And he had been waiting outside the door when Amin had murdered the Archbishop Janani Lewum inside. And Festo Kivingeri, he had every reason to hate Idi Amin. But in 1977, he published a book with the title, I Love Idi Amin. And in the book, he talked about how Christ's love had changed him. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. As evil as Idi Amin was, how could I do less toward him? So that's what Paul means when he talks about charity. He means a love that is costly and sacrificial and a love that extends even to one's enemies. The question is, how do we cultivate this virtue of love in our own lives? It's not easy. And it wouldn't really have been easy for the Galatian Christians who first received Paul's letter. The culture in which they lived, the culture of ancient Rome, was not a culture of charity. It was a culture of ambition and honor and competition. And it wasn't at all a hospitable place for Christ-like love. And of course, our culture isn't that different from the one of ancient Rome. We too live in a world that encourages us to prioritize our own good, to be independent, to look after ourselves and our family. And just like ancient Rome, our culture is a culture of competition and ambition and striving. And just think about how we approach education. You know, parents are willing to pay a great price in time and effort and sometimes money to see their kids succeed in education. And students live under constant stress as a result of the competition they experienced. But what does it mean to succeed in education? What is it exactly that we want for our kids? At the end of the day, isn't it really just a matter of competition and comparison? To succeed just means to do better than your peers so that you can get into a better college so that you can get the best job possible. And of course, the result of all of this is that it trains us to think of our own success and the success of our children as the most important thing. And to think of other people as either useful to us or maybe as threats to our success. As the farmer and writer Wendell Berry once put it, the popular aim of education is to put everybody on top. Well, I think I hardly need to document the consequent pushing and trampling and kicking in the face. And of course, education is just one example. We could list many others. And the point is, our culture does not train us to be people of Christ-like love. But what can we do to resist the influences of the culture in which we live? How can we become people of charity when we live in a culture that's so dominated by self-interest? 
Well, the first thing, the first thing that needs to be said is this. Real love, Christ-like love, it's not something we can conjure up in ourselves. This kind of love is, as the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas put it, not an acquired virtue, not something we can acquire through practice, but an infused virtue, which is to say that it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, as I noted in our last session, even though we recognize that this love is a gift, the New Testament still calls us to, to cultivate that love in our own lives. And I'd like to suggest just three simple strategies for how we can do just that. The first strategy is this. If we want to cultivate love, then we need to learn how to pay attention. We won't love those around us until we learn to see them, to see them as they really are, as people who are already loved by God. You know, Jesus models this in his own ministry. On numerous occasions, at the home of Peter's mother, when he first meets Matthew, at the feeding of the 5,000, at a funeral procession in the town of Nain, in his interactions with the crippled woman and then with the tax collector Zacchaeus. On each of these occasions, Jesus loves people in very clear and concrete ways. But also, on each of these occasions, the first thing that we are told is that Jesus sees them. Jesus saw people. He saw people that others didn't see or didn't think were worth their time. Kids, cripples, tax collectors, prostitutes, foreigners. Jesus gave these people his attention because he saw them for what they really were, as objects of his Father's love. And if we want to cultivate love, then that is where we must begin, by learning how to pay attention. And that's a habit that begins at home, with the people closest to us, the, the people that we interact with on a daily basis, but so often fail to really see accurately. As Mother Teresa so wisely said, it is easy to love the people far away. It is not always easy to love those closest to us. Bring love into your home, for this is where our love for each other must start. So that's the first strategy for cultivating love. Pay attention. And the second one is also very simple, and it's this. Pray. You may remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus instructs his followers to love their enemies, he also tells them to pray for them. Love your enemies, he says, and pray for those who persecute you. And maybe that sounds like two different commands. Love them and pray for them. But in fact, these two are actually deeply connected. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, not only because that's one way of loving them, but also because when we pray for other people, our own hearts change. You know, it's very difficult to hate someone when you pray for them. And as we pray for others, as we intercede, the Holy Spirit actually uses our prayer to help us come to share in God's love for them. So that's the second strategy for cultivating love. Pray. And the third strategy is also very simple, but may sound at first a bit odd. And my third strategy for cultivating love is this. Come to worship. Now, philosophers in recent years have written a lot about 
how participation in worship and what we do in worship shapes the way that we love and the objects of our love. And that's all true. But it's not just because worship redirects our love toward God. One of the most influential ways that worship shapes our loves is by reminding us each and every time we gather together of the truth that we read in 1 John 4 verse 10, that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Every time you and I gather together and hear the gospel proclaimed in both word and sacrament, we are reminded of the simple yet earth-shattering truth that we are loved, that God loves us, that he loves us so much that he sent his son. That's something that we are often prone to forget. And that's why we need to hear it again and again and again. Because that is how we become a people capable of love. Not by conjuring up love in our own hearts, but by knowing that we are loved. So come to worship. Spend time in prayer. Pay attention to those around you. And as you do those things, take notice of how the Spirit transforms you into a person of Christ-like love.